to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. While I was praying, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the first vision, came to me about the time of the evening sacrifice. I have come to give you the reply because you are highly respected. So study the message and understand the vision. Seventy sets of seven time periods have been assigned for your people and your holy city. Learn then and understand that from the time the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed prince comes, seven sets of seven time periods and sixty-two sets of seven time periods will pass. Jerusalem will be restored and rebuilt with a city square and a moat during the troubles of those times. But after the sixty-two sets of seven time periods, the Anointed One will be cut off and have nothing. Daniel, chapter 9, verses 21 through 26, God's Word Translation. On the next day, the large crowd that had come to the Passover festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went to meet him. They were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus obtained a donkey and sat on it, as scripture says, Don't be afraid, people of Zion. Your king is coming. He is riding on a donkey's colt. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, God's Word Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we're going to wrap up the series that we've been doing on biblical prophets and prophecy, with a focus on the book of Daniel. R.D., you said that today you wanted to spend most of the show on what you consider to be perhaps the most amazing example of fulfilled prophecy in the entire Bible the so-called prophecy of 70 weeks that's found in Daniel chapter 9. Would you care to give us a hint of what's coming? Sure. As we often talk about on Anchored by Truth, one of the strongest lines of evidence that the Bible has a supernatural origin is that there is a very large body of prophecy contained in various books of the Bible. Now, we live in an era that's more than 2,000 years after the time of Christ. So we can see from history that a large number of those prophecies that are contained in the Bible have already come to pass. And not only were a lot of those prophecies fulfilled, but they were fulfilled with a degree of precision that makes it impossible that any human being could have made the prophecy unless they were being inspired by an omniscient God who not only knew everything that has happened, but also everything that will happen. Yes, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10 say, I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. So, of course, if God discloses the future to one of his servants, 
That lets us know that God was directly inspiring that person. From a human standpoint, we don't know who will win the next ball game or election, but God does. That's why he's the only one worthy of worship. Well, before we get too far into the details of what God revealed to Daniel in chapter 9 and how it was fulfilled, let's listen to one of Crystal C.'s Life Lessons with a Laugh. This one is about the many titles for Jesus that were used in different parts of Scripture. Hey, Crystal Sea sail blowers and anchor throwers. R.D. here. Hey, R.D. R.D., before you launch into one of your uh, colorful introductions, why is there a computer monitor sitting next to my recording stool? And why does the screen read, I'm with your majesty, with an arrow pointing at my stool? Oh, B-Wright and I were just listening to some old recordings of life lessons. And she came across the one where you called yourself Your Majesty. Oh, no, no, no. We thought it might serve as a good intro into our final lesson in this series about the different names the Bible uses for the boss. Wait, wait. I never called myself Your Majesty. You were running through names that started with J. And I said, Well, you did seem quite enamored with the name Your Majesty. You repeated it several times with affection. No, 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 no affection, no enamor, uh uh-uh. I was just making the point that my name is not Your Majesty. Got it. Not Your Majesty. Changing display. Is that hyphenated or all one word? Oh, good grief. Well, I, for one, would like to get back to talking about the final name for the boss we want to discuss in this series. And it's a pretty special one. And I think it will help you feel better about not being majestic. Oh, no. I didn't think I was majestic. I was just... Well, be right and I still think you're a prince, no matter what other people say. Other people? Wait, what other people? What are they saying? Be right. What is the first mention of the name Emmanuel in the Bible? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14... God says, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Notice that the first reference to the name Emmanuel is in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Isaiah. But that's not the only one. The boss is also called Emmanuel in the New Testament. In the book of Matthew, chapter 1, in verse 20, an angel of the Lord said to Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Later, In verse 23, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hmm, I think I see where you're going, R.D. 
Isaiah predicted that one day a child would be born for whom the name God with us would be appropriate. And the boss's birth fulfilled that prophecy literally despite the fact that more than 700 years had elapsed. God always fulfills his promises, even when from a human standpoint, we think he's forgotten. True dad. But in this case, the news isn't just good. It's toe-tapping, finger-snapping, gums-flapping, thigh-slapping, and hands-clapping good. Notice, Matthew didn't say Emmanuel meant God could be with us, or might be with us, or even will be with us. It means God is with us, right now, today and every day, now and forever. Man, that's the kind of news that will shake your soul and rattle your brain. Well, maybe your brain, not your majesty. My processors continue to perform optimally. I will adjust the monitor display to note that the real majesty is with us. So be right. Catch us up on all the names we've reviewed for the boss in this series. So far, we have seen that the boss may be rightfully called the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Advocate, the Son of David and Abraham, and Emmanuel, and that each of those names has specific meaning and tells us something important about him. So, J-Rap... You know what all this means. Indeed I do, R.D. Indeed I do. Here we go. As Alpha and Omega. He's the boundary of time. As Lord of Lord and King of Kings. People see him shine. As Paraclete and Advocate. He makes his virtue mine. As David's greatest son. He's from the royal line. As son of Abraham. He blesses all mankind. As our Emmanuel, he proves that he's divine. Name upon name, through the march of time, he's master and savior by decree and design. True that, Jerry. Hey, that's my name. Did she just say my name? The AI said my name. Of course I did, Jerry. Like I said, my logic processors are just fine. And... Well done, R.D. Majesty. Well, thank you, B-Right. But there may be a problem with your processors. It's just R.D., not R.D. Majesty. That's not what it says on the monitor. Huh? Where did that come from? And whose picture is that? I don't have purple hair. How about that? Turns out B-Right isn't the only one who can change the monitor display. Green freckles? I don't have freckles. (laughs) Epic. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Sure. Still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're We're not not famous, famous, but but our our boss boss is. (laughs) Wow. Who knew you and Jerry could uh, rap, uh, sort of? Uh, Well, Jerry and I have many hidden talents. We can. Well, as excited as I'm sure the listeners would be to hear about your uh, hidden uh, talents, we've got a lot to get to today. So let's get to it.
In our opening scriptures, we heard that the prophecy from Daniel chapter 9, but we also heard a verse from the Gospel of John about Palm Sunday. So I'm guessing that you see there's a connection between these two. Well, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of biblical commentators have seen a direct connection between Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that is commemorated in what we now call Palm Sunday. One of those commentators is Dr. Harold Honer, who was the chairman of the Department of New Testament Literature and Exegesis at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Honer wrote a fantastic book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and I'd highly recommend that book to listeners who would like to study a little bit more about biblical prophecy and especially about the life of Jesus. Actually, it's not a very long book, despite its imposing title. Well, we're going to be taking a lot of information for today's discussion from Dr. Honer's book. Again, it's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Now, in that book, Dr. Honer devotes an entire chapter just to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, and Dr. Honer demonstrates that there's a degree of prophetic precision in that prophecy, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. All right, then. Let's start our examination by seeing exactly what the prophecy predicted would happen. Now, we heard in the early part of the Daniel scripture that there would be a command given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That was necessary because at the time Daniel received this prophecy, Jerusalem was in ruins, having been completely destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C., about 50 years earlier. Precisely. At the time Daniel received the prophecy we heard about in our first scripture, Daniel himself had been in captivity for close to 70 years because he was part of the first group of Jews who had been deported from Israel, and that deportation occurred around 605 B.C. But at the time of that first deportation, the Babylonians did not completely destroy Jerusalem. They conquered Jerusalem, they conquered the the Jews and the Hebrews, But what they did was they installed a vassal king, and they just started collecting taxes from the Jews that they left in Israel. Ultimately, though, the Jews, in the way that they were in those days, continued to rebel, even against the Babylonians who had already conquered them once. And so after continued rebellions, the Babylonians completely destroyed Jerusalem. They just razed the city, and they deported all of the population, except for a few of the very poorest people, And so the people either went into exile under the Babylonians or they were just scattered to the surrounding nations. But of course, Jerusalem had a special role to play in God's plan for redemption, so God was going to be sure that it was rebuilt. It didn't matter how pagan emperors might ordinarily behave, kings and emperors are all going to do whatever God tells them to do. So how did Jerusalem get rebuilt? Well, when the Medo-Persian Confederation conquered Babylon, the Persian emperor Cyrus gave the first of four decrees that ultimately would result in Jerusalem's complete restoration. Now, Cyrus's initial decree was given in 538 BC, but that decree really only allowed the Jews to return back to their homeland, and it primarily concerned not the rebuilding of the city Jerusalem, but the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, over the next not quite hundred years, three more similar decrees followed. The final of those four decrees came in 444 B.C. from the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. Well, how can we be sure which of the four decrees started the prophetic time clock ticking, and exactly what time period are we concerned with? 
Well, let's take the second part of your question first. Commentators are pretty much universally agreed that when the angel Gabriel, who delivered the prophecy to Daniel, referred to 70 sets of seven time periods, he was referring to 70 seven-year periods. Now, some translations of that part of the Bible refer to 70 weeks, but really when those translations do so, the term weeks is really sort of a poetic usage. And for a variety of reasons, which Dr. Honer covers thoroughly in his book, pretty much all the commentators agree that what Gabriel was referring to was this period of 77-year periods. But notice that this 77-year periods, it's not one continuous period of 490 years. The total time period is broken into three smaller periods. And notice that it's after the first period, the 7 times 7 or 49 period, has elapsed, and then the 62 times 7 period, or the 434 year period, notice that the Messiah gets cut off after those two time periods have elapsed. So what's happening here is that when the Messiah, that after the decree is given to restore or rebuild Jerusalem, that the Messiah will be cut off, Notice that these two multiple periods of seven years will have elapsed. Well, the total between that 49-year time period, the first, and then the 434-time year period, that's a total period of 483 years. In other words, 483 years were prophesied to elapse between the decree issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the cutting off of the Messiah. So to evaluate the prophecy's accuracy, we need to know which of these four Persian decrees started that 483-year time clock ticking. Right. As Dr. Honer discusses in his book, really only one of those four decrees, which was the last of the four, really meets the criteria given in Daniel chapter 9. And the decree that really meets those criteria is actually discussed in the Bible in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Only the Nehemiah decree talked about rebuilding the city's walls, and of course, in the ancient world, rebuilding the city's walls would have been an essential part to having a safe city. And having a safe city is what's implied in the prophecy's discussion of the city square and moat. When the prophecy refers to a city square, that implies a sort of broad, open place within the city that's protected. The city square was a meeting place, a place where people got together, had conversations, did things. So in order to have that kind of an area within the city, it implies that that portion of the city is safe. Well, the only way that they could have a safe city square would be by having the walls rebuilt. And of course, the moat would be a supplement to the defensive fortification that the wall provide. Now, according to Dr. Honer's calculations, Artaxerxes issued his decree, and this is using our calendar as the date, that Artaxerxes issued his decree on either March 4th or March 5th of 444 B.C. So that takes care of the start of the time clock and how long the time clock would run, right? Well, not quite. Remember that the ancient Jews did not use the Gregorian calendar, which is the one that we use. The Gregorian calendar and its predecessor, the Julian calendar, both use a 365-day period for a year, which is based on the solar cycle, the Earth's period of revolution around the sun. Now, of course, in the Gregorian calendar, every fourth year is a so-called leap year to account for the fact that the solar cycle is actually slightly longer than 365 days. 
Well, the Hebrews did not use a 365-day year. They used a calendar that was divided into 12 equal periods of 30 days. So our current solar calendar year is not identical to the ancient Jewish calendar's year. In other words, the ancient Jews' year was 360 days long and not 365 days like ours. And so to make our calculation correctly, we have to convert the years to days. So, 483 years times the 360 days the ancient Jews used for their calendar comes out to be 173,880 days. So, according to the prophecy, 173,880 days would elapse between the issuing the decree to restore Jerusalem and the Messiah being cut off. Are we just about ready to check Daniel's accuracy? Just about, but one more detail. Now, today we know that the solar year is not just 365 days. We know it's a little bit longer. It's actually a little bit longer than 365 and a quarter days. The solar year is actually 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 45.975 seconds. 45.975 seconds. Yeah, I don't want to forget those. No, you don't, because God didn't forget those. Now, let's see what happens if you add those 173,880 days to March 5th of 444 B.C., and you translate that result into our Gregorian calendar. Well, what you do is you come out to March 30th of 33 A.D., which is the day that we call today Palm Sunday. And that was the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we heard about in our second scripture. Of course, Palm Sunday occurred just before Jesus' crucifixion. Now, naturally, being crucified is a pretty dramatic way of being cut off and having nothing. So, a lot of New Testament commentators agree that it was on Palm Sunday when Jesus' role as the Messiah, the Anointed One, became the most visible during his pre-resurrection lifetime. On Palm Sunday, Jesus visibly fulfilled a large number of Old Testament prophecies, such as the one in Zechariah 9.9, which prophesied that the Messiah would come to his people riding on the foal of a donkey. This is starting to be another one of those moments that, when you think about it very much, gives you a headache. Let's review for just a second. Sometime around 535 B.C., the angel Gabriel visited Daniel, who was still in exile and far outside his homeland. Gabriel told Daniel that at some point in the future, a decree would be issued that would allow the Jews to rebuild their city, including the walls that would permit it to have a safe city square and interior. Then, 483 of their years after the issuance of that decree, the Jewish Messiah would appear to the people, only to be cut off, and have nothing. Exactamundo, as I sometimes say to Jerry. And we now know from history that all that unfolded exactly as Gabriel told Daniel that it would. Almost 100 years after Gabriel visited Daniel, the Persian emperor Artaxerxes issued a decree that's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2 and for which secular history provides confirmation. Then another 476 plus of our years go by and the prophecy is fulfilled on the exact day that was foretold, taking into account that the solar year actually contains 5 hours, 48 minutes, 
and 45.975 seconds that we never pay attention to. That's not amazing. That's mind-boggling in the most literal meaning of the term. That's God. He is mind-boggling, literally. But there's one more thought that I want to cover today that is almost even more amazing than the prophetic precision that we've been talking about. Not sure we can take much more. What we've already learned is a lot to meditate about for days. Well, I do think one more aspect of this prophecy needs to be emphasized. Clearly, only omniscient and an omnipotent God could give such a prophecy to one of his people and then orchestrate the events to bring it about. So the prophecy and its fulfillment alone illustrate that the Bible has a supernatural origin. But think about this. When Daniel heard about the prophecy, his world didn't even know that the earth revolved around the sun, much less know the period of that revolution around the sun. But God did, and so do we. That means that we can see the amazing accuracy of God's activity within history in a way that even Daniel couldn't. Oh, I think I see where you're going with this. Sometimes Christians in our era will say to themselves how much stronger their faith would be if they had only seen Jesus turn the water into wine or feed 5,000 people with only a few loaves and fish. But in an oddly ironic way, we have evidence to support our faith that even the people who lived alongside Daniel or Jesus didn't possess. Precisely. The Bible is so commonplace in our society that sometimes we miss the amazing attributes that it possesses. We have the Bible with us all the time, and we can go to it daily or even multiple times a day. And every time we do, we can have our faith reinforced not only by the comforting passages, like the fact that God will never leave us or forsake us, but by the fact that the Bible displays in every book the fact that God has given us evidence and reason to support and sustain our belief in Him. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. How about if today we pray for our nation to be blessed as we remember America's founding on the 4th of July? Prayer for July 4th Father of truth and life, we exalt your name because you are the source of all good gifts that we enjoy. You rule not only the destinies of men, but also the destinies of nations. In your good pleasure, you raise nations up and you bring others down. There is no activity in the universe, much less in the world, that falls outside your dominion. Lord, we are first and foremost citizens of your kingdom, and we seek first your glory. Still, in your mercy, you have also made some of your children citizens of the United States. We cherish this privilege that you have extended to us. This was a nation initially brought into being by men and women who found in your word a strong call to freedom and a dependence on your providence. Through their faith, You led them to establish a land where its people could choose their leaders, worship freely, and work for their own prosperity. We are grateful for their virtue and the vision that they brought into reality. Today, we celebrate the legacy that they passed to us. In celebrating today, however, we are mindful that this nation has wandered far from the principles on which it was established. In America today, too often, 
Freedom of worship has been exchanged for license to condemn the worship of the one true God. Regard for the sanctity of innocent human life has been traded for the false idol of convenient choice. Free enterprise has been chiseled into the cheap counterfeits of rapacious commercialism and rampant consumerism. Respect for truth has been sacrificed on the altar of diminished discernment, and reverence for you has been trampled beneath smug, self-satisfied, and presumptuous feet. We pray that you would forgive us for wandering so far, and in your mercy we pray for restoration. We ask that you help us to again embrace your word as truth and your call to holiness as a personal charge. We pray that you would renew our passion for a relationship with you that is truly redemptive and not self-indulgent. We pray that you would guide and direct our leaders and bring many to a saving knowledge of your majesty. We pray that your children would again become salt and light through the steadfastness of their testimony. The Bible commands us to be good citizens. We celebrate today because we cherish our citizenship in this nation. We pray that we would honor our freedom by helping others to see the real liberty found only in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.